Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the Mississippi Book Festival's special LGBTQ plus panel called Out in Focus. I'm Jamie Harker. I'm a professor of English at the University of Mississippi, director of the Sarah Eisen Center for Women and Gender Studies. For the purposes of today, and I think why I was asked to chair this panel, I'm the founder of Violet Valley Bookstore, which is a queer feminist bookstore in Water Valley, Mississippi. I have a distinguished panel of writers joining me today. I'm very excited about this conversation. So I'm going to do a brief introduction of each of our panelists. When I say your name, feel free to wave. I think this Zoom is going to be, our video is going to be in the chat. And then I'll get us started on conversation. I'm very much looking forward to it. So thank you, everyone, for being here. Okay, so on our panels, first we have John Marzalek. He's a certified counselor and licensed professional counselor in Mississippi and has been an educator for over 20 years as clinical faculty of the online clinical mental health counseling program at Southern New Hampshire University. He received his PhD in counselor education at Mississippi State University. His book, Coming Out of the Magnolia Closet, is his first. He's the host of the podcast, Queer Voices of the South, on the LGBTQ plus studies channel of the New Books Network. John lives with his husband in Starkville, Mississippi. Welcome, John. Thanks, Jamie. Second, we have M. Shelley Connor. Connor uses her experiences as a dapper queer black woman to produce multi-genre works that examine intersections of race, gender, and sexuality. Her collection of writing spans multiple media, including print, screen, and web platforms, and vacillates between the sardonic, sardonic humor of queer life and the informative exposition of essays like Discovering My Femininity in Menswear. Her novel, Every Man, follows the historical contours of the great migration of African Americans that fled the American South in droves for better, better racial and economic opportunities in the North. As a whole, Shelley's writing makes queer interventions in a tradition of storytelling about Black life and families from Jim Crow South to Southside Chicago. Her work has appeared in After Ellen, Curve Magazine, The Feminist Wire, and other print and digital publications. Shelley writes about the intersections of race, gender, and sexuality in dapper queer culture. Welcome, Shelley. Thank you. And way to rock the dapper queer right now with that. Uh, <laughs> All right, third, we have Philip Pip Gordon. Born in Memphis, Tennessee, and grew up in nearby Jackson. He holds degrees from the University of Tennessee Barton and the University of Mississippi. Fist bump. Uh, and uh, is the author of Gay Faulkner, Uncovering a Homosexual Presence in Yachtin, Batafa, and Beyond. He currently lives and works in Platteville, Wisconsin, where he teaches American literature, film, and gay and lesbian studies. And he lives with his dog, Scout. Welcome, Pip. Hey, y'all. Fourth, we have Elizabeth McCain. Originally from Mississippi, Elizabeth McCain is a storyteller, <laughs> spiritual counselor, story coach, and shamanic interfaith minister. She supports women and LGBTQ plus people in expressing and reframing their stories of loss and transition. Elizabeth has written and performed an award-winning one-woman play, A Lesbian Bell Tells All, which has entertained and inspired people from all walks of life. And this is also the book that was published this last year. Whether counseling, coaching, performing, or ministering, she believes that sharing stories in community touches hearts, provides story medicine for the soul, and changes the world. Elizabeth lives in the Washington, D.C. area with her spouse and their two dogs. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you, Jamie. And fi finally, Martin Padgett, uh, who's written books, features, broadcast reviews, and news for 30 years. 
He's the editorial director for Internet Brands Automotive, where he runs websites that include the Car Connection, Green Car Reports, and Motor Authority. Martin has written for Bitter Southerner, Oxford American, Gravy, The Washington Post, Outside <laughs> Business Week, Men's Health, and Creative Loafing on topics that range from single mothers in pursuit of sole custody to the prison labor that trains wild horses for adoption. He earned his MFA in narrative nonfiction writing from the University of Georgia's Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication. He was named the 2019 Lambda Literary Fellow and is pursuing a PhD in history at Georgia State University. And I neglected to write down the full title and I don't want to mess it up. So tell us the title of your book, Martin. It's A Night at the Sweet Gum Head, Drag, Drugs, Disco, and Atlanta's Gay Revolution. You see why we didn't want to lose that title. I apologize for not having written it down. It's a, it's, the subhead will kill you. Yeah. Um, that's there. Marty lives in Atlanta and Pensacola Beach with his husband, three cats, and an overflowing file of future story ideas. Welcome, Martin. Thank you for having me. It is a pleasure to see you all. Um, and I'm just going to launch us into the first uh, question. So one is a little historical grounding. This is only the second time that the Mississippi Book Festival has had an LGBTQ plus panel. Um, and I want to start off about your own experiences with stories of LGBTQ plus life. Did you grow up with any narratives uh, that told you about queer life? If so, what were they? Were they affirming, frightening, challenging, or was it simply invisible? I'm wondering about your own coming of age as writers. Did you know about queer life? And if so, what kinds of stories did you know? Yeah, you know, um, I had no queer stories growing up. I knew that my parents were very progressive and that I knew that years ago, my dad's first apartment had at Mississippi State was in a queer relationship. I knew it. there were two men, but I, no one ever talked about it. And so I didn't hear anything. And the first time I even thought about the world were gay was when I was in high school and um, Newsweek came out. My parents subscribed to Newsweek and it comes in the mail. And I see on the front a whole article about um, gays coming out and um, I think maybe H. IV too. It's been a long time. But I remember having this like fear inside me thinking, oh my God, now I've kind of got to start thinking about what my identity is, you know. But up until then I didn't hear anything, not a not a peep. Yeah, I I agree. Um it was just this stark absence of of queer stories, um, specifically queer stories. Now there were queer characters, but they were also always on the periphery um, and used for comic relief, um, particularly in television and movies and things like that. Um, so yeah, I spent a large part of my youth looking <laughs> as I, as I was reading. I was, I was, I, I agree uh, with what, what M. Shelley Connor said that uh, for me, I, I wanted narratives. I sought out narratives and, and I don't know how many other people did this as well. Nowadays, I, I just came from my class teaching young adult, like LGBTQ plus young adult literature. You, you can just go to a bookstore and find them. At the time, like, I would read random classical work of literature and convince myself that that some character was clearly queer, uh, which obviously has influenced my writing. <laughs> um, but uh, also, so I, I was looking for narratives. I was looking for stories that would, that felt like they would help me see myself. Uh, and I, yeah, they were marginalized when they were on mainstream television or they were tragic stories. Um, and then in terms of sort of, uh, I, I always sort of tell the story these days that for me, my, my actual coming out moment was on October 7th, 1998, 
when I decided for the first time to come out to a friend, completely unaware that that was also the day in Laramie, Wyoming, when Matthew Shepard was attacked and found. Um, and so my so for coming out in that moment in the late 90s, uh, there was on the one hand, like seeking narrative, seeking some affirmation of identity, surrounded by a lot of negative press and negative news in that that period of time. I, I, I'll leave it for later questions to determine if we, we've progressed from that or not. But um, and, and then, of course, trying to trying to trying to believe that the narrative didn't have to be that, that it could be better than that. Well, I came out later in life as the elder of the panel. I do believe I will claim it. <laughs> I came I out about that. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, John and I might be. I don't know. Uh, I'm 57. I came out at 30, which was a long time ago in 1994, and um, I came out as bisexual first. And back in those days, it was gay and lesbian everything it was before all the letters right and a little bit of bisexual and then you know much later trans and all the letters and how we've evolved and so i was um i was a therapist at the time so i started reading lots of psychology books on coming out and um of course dorothy allison and then Ellen came out a few years later and you know there was a rich rich lesbian culture here in dc a long time ago. Um, so it's been a very interesting journey. <laughs> so I have been thinking about this a lot because I'm working on a new uh, story and I grew up in the DC area. So I read the Washington post when I was a kid, I was very strange. Um, and it was in the late seventies and the early eighties. And my most vivid memories are seeing their initial reporting about grid and AIDS and I haven't really understood what that meant until the past couple of years when I started writing about it and how much of it I had internalized and what it meant to grow up in the penumbra of, of an epidemic. I wasn't active yet, but uh, I could see what was happening to the people who were. And that was even more incentive not to come out. And like, like many of us here, I, I didn't come out until my late 20s, uh, in part because you know, there was just this, this feeling that it was, well, like ACT UP would put it. Uh, you know, that, that meant death. And you know, it took a long time to realize that it did not mean that and that there was a rich life. In it. So um, I'm trying to also find the memories from the 80s that, uh, that were really reinforcing. And I'm, I'll talk about it a little bit later. That's what I'm writing about next, someone who really was a hero of the 80s. Thank you, everyone. And, and feel free, you don't ha if you want to weigh in on every question, you of course can. If you are not moved to, you don't have to do that, but I'm, I'm glad to have you here. So that's the backstory, which is either an absence or scary stories I'm hearing, or maybe sort of lesions in it. What kind of narratives do you wish you would have had? Like, what kind of stories would you have liked to have had in growing up? And does that desire inform the kind of stories you're telling now in your own writing? I'll, I'll say, because I, I just literally before this panel came from, like I said, teaching a class on LGBTQ plus young adult literature, and we're starting with Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda, a nice Southern set novel by uh, by Becky Albertalli. And I, I always start with it because it's just a kind of a straightforward, not a straight anything narrative. My bad. Let me edit that out. Uh, it's sort of a, a clear cut narrative of a simple coming out story of someone who is privileged, uh, has, a, has, a, has a supportive family, um, 
a, a white male who comes out as, as, as cisgender and gay. It, it sort of, you know, follows along a, a track that's sort of easy for the students to, to follow along with before we start adding more intersectionality. And I tell my students that, like, I, I try to think of how different things would have been if that book existed or the movie version when I was 16 coming out of the closet back in 1998, um, that it was, it's just such a breath of fresh air. Um, and as soon as I say that, then I realize that that book came out in, in uh, 2015 or 2016, I think the movie came out. And between then and now, the narratives that are emerging, especially in, in young adult fiction, but also in really other genres are just so, so much more refreshing, so much, so much, so much happier. <laughs> and and that, that would have set a very different standard. I, I try to tell my students, I'm still recovering from the trauma of coming out in the 90s and early 2000s and that that I, I love being radical for that reason but I also sort of wish I could be a little more boring and sort of just chill so anyway <laughs> I think of um Kiese Lehman's Long Division and it's a major character but her sexuality isn't but there there are definitely um some nods to the fact that she's queer the um character Bay's Shepherd and um, she raps. And so I, I think about when I was in um, in high school and fancied myself a nascent rapper. <laughs> I guess my, my one of my earlier forays into into literature and, and, and rhyme and spoken word. And so, I mean, just the beauty of that book, it's about, you know, black kids in Mississippi who time travel and and all of these kind of aspects of, of their identity are um, just so beautifully rendered. And it's, you, it's not specifically about being queer or specifically about being this one or other part of their identity, but it's truly intersectional in that it's time travel and this is how it affects kids um, with these intersectional um, identities uh, that they're they're marginalized by all of them um, individually as well as collectively, and so I think I think books like that I would have loved to read. What would it look like if um, you know Nancy Drew were a queer black woman, right? Um, the Hardy Boys, right? If if they were you know queer brothers or or black brothers or queer black brothers or uh, non-binary, um, and just kind of thinking how different and how more nuanced the stories um, and, and their engagement and my engagement would be. So, you know, when I do think of kind of earlier things that I read, it's always, you know, looking for the Black people, um, particularly looking for the Black women. And I didn't realize or, or recognize myself as queer as a child, as I, as I do now, um, mainly because I had kind of naturalized my, my behaviors and, and desires. I, I really thought that everyone felt the same way that I did. So, um, I guess I was fortunate to, with, with that. Um, but thinking of the, um, the frog and toad books, like I, I just kind of thought that they were queer and didn't it come out that they are frog and toad? Yeah. So, yeah, so I, I saw that, but then they're also frogs and not people. So, you know, um, I had to kind of get, 
where I could, you know, a, a little bit of here. And, and if I wanted um, female agency, then it looked like Nancy Drew, because then you certainly didn't have a lot um, of young adult publishing from black writers with black characters and things like that. So, yeah. I love these panels because it makes me realize things I hadn't thought about before. And you just did that for me because I read through all the Hardy Boy books. And looking back in my adult mind, looking back as a child, I think that's what I was probably thinking in the back of my mind, that this, this is more than just two people solving detective um, books. And I had a, a girl across the street that read all the Judy Bloom books. And I was a ferocious reader, so I read all those books, too. And looking back, I wish there had been a Judy Bloom book with queer characters in it, because that really would have made a difference for me, you know, at a young age. Um, and then I... The book that really changed my life is not the most profound book, but it's um, called I'm Being Gay by Brian McNaught. Um, it's about, I think he was an Episcopal priest who um, realized he's gay and, you know, comes out of the religion and comes into this relationship and everything's wonderful. Well, I went down this rabbit hole. I came out in 86, and then I went down this rabbit hole of trying to balance my spirituality and my sexual orientation and almost became a priest. And then one day I picked up this book in the bookstore and I just, I had this flash of them through me and I'm like, what am I doing? You know, this is not for me. And it was so helpful to read about somebody who had been having the same experience that I was struggling with at the time. Oh, John, you're reminding me of that. I read that book too. And my, my reading when I was coming out back in the nineties um, was mainly books on spirituality and sexuality because I almost went to seminary to become an Episcopal priest. I didn't. Oh, wow became an interfaith minister out in California. That's another story, sure. but um, I was wrestling with that in the 90s. So, you know, looking back, I went to a tiny boarding school in, in Tennessee, an Episcopal boarding school, and it was just not on my mind at all. I mean, I didn't have a boyfriend, but it didn't dawn on me that, you know, maybe I should have a girlfriend. It just didn't. Um, I mean, there were, there's one rumor of one lesbian relationship on campus. And I remember hearing that word and going, oh, well, that's interesting, you know, and, and it wasn't like bad. I didn't think that was bad. I was just like, that's kind of different. And then I went to Randolph-Macon Women's College in Lynchburg, Virginia and graduated. What was that? that was the 80s, 82 to 86. And, you know, there were no there were no lesbian groups back then. There were no um, coming out groups that, you know, there were some kind of butch looking women in the theater department who <laughs> were a little scary looking, you know, and it just didn't dawn on me and, you know, dated lots of men all through my twenties and, you know, it was okay. But I was like, well, maybe I'll just never get married because these men aren't committing. And so I just came out later. It didn't dawn on me until I was about 30 when a boyfriend suggested <laughs> A story in my book. It's the first chapter. It's really good on becoming a lesbian. Um, and he was like, well, have you ever thought of becoming a lesbian? And I was sort of, sort of offended a little bit, but so then I started reading stuff. Then I, you know, everything I could get my hands on, on spirituality and sexuality rather than literature, I guess. I mean, I did get to Dorothy Allison and um, Ruby Fruit, Ruby Fruit Jungle and all those but uh, it's, it's fun to look back and, and wonder, you know, would that have made a difference? What if I had come out earlier? But I really don't have any regrets because I think we all come to our sexuality and spirituality in unique, fascinating ways. And when we can have 
curiosity about each other and especially from different generations and different parts of the country and even different parts of the South. I think that's just really rich to explore that. It's so funny, though, that you went to boarding school and then you went to an all women's college. Yeah. Looking for <laughs> it, it, it's all around you from from what I've read about those, those places. <laughs> that was my dream. I was swimming to in it. Boarding school. <laughs> I was not in any of those places. That's like I could go there and there'd be all women and no parents. That'd be awesome. Right. You were yeah. there. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I wasn't even realizing myself as like liking women romantically in that way. But I do remember really wanting to go to boarding school and oh. um, thinking about going to um, an all women's college. It's in Atlanta. How, how dare I forget it? Not Agnes Scott. No, no, no. It's it's an HBCU. I can't believe I forget it. It's right across from Morehouse because Morehouse is all men. And oh, Spellman. Spellman. Spellman, oh, yeah. Gosh, this is so embarrassing. As a graduate from an HBCU. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I really thought about going to Spellman, um, but I definitely know, had I gone to Spellman, had I gone to, you know, boarding school and high school, my queerness would have definitely emerged a lot sooner than it did, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, if we're yeah. talking about boarding school narratives, I mean, let's just I was waiting for Harry and Ron to hook up and totally get rid of Hermione in that whole Harry Potter series. But, you know, <laughs> luckily by that point in literary history, there was enough fan fiction out there that easily sort of like smoothed over that, that hump. But anyway, I'd... but that, that's, that's a fair point, right? We didn't have these and fan fiction yeah. has really just spilled <laughs> out and created that whole world. But I, I kind of want the media that people today or people in five to 10 years will have, because now we've got representation. It's becoming more prevalent. And I think by then it'll be ubiquitous. Like, I, I guess the thing that's popping into my head is the Sopranos. They had queer characters and, you know, they still ended up getting shot in the head, thrown into the Atlantic, but it was for different reasons. And, uh, you know, just imagine like Goodfellas, if Joe Pesci had like survived and, you know, retired to Palm Springs like everybody else. And if there were if there were super hit um, mega hits like Star Wars back then that had had queer characters, what difference that would have made when when the media bandwidth was so narrow and so deep. I've just put into the chat a little uh, background on a queering of Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys in the 90s by Mabel Maney, for those who are fans. Not quite as radical as you were saying, Shelley, but it's a step in that direction. Nancy Clue, Cherry Aimless, and the Hardly Boys. So that's just Oh, weird. yes. Got to watch those uh, copyrights. Yes. So um, <laughs> I was hoping that last question would lead into you talking about your own books a little bit more, but you're all far too polite to talk about yourself. So I'm going to do a more direct question this time. Um, you all are writing in a, a wide range of genres. That's one of the things I really enjoyed about, about looking at all of your books. We're looking at literary criticism, oral history, fiction, memoir. I mean, you've got a kind of different ways, social sciences, different ways of understanding this. Um, could you talk a little bit, why did you write your book in this way? Why did you choose this particular form or genre? And did you draw from multiple kinds of disciplines or genres as you were writing? Talk a little bit about the process of putting your book together. And obviously that also means tell us about your book. I just answered this question two days ago for a group of MFA students. So let me see if I can get it down to under a half hour. Uh, I, I knew what I was going to, I knew what I was writing was going to be oral history. It was going to be some journalism. It was going to be some historical archive research, but underneath it all, I knew that there was a musical function to it because I wrote about uh, a, 
it's a nightclub in the seventies and all these drag performers who were using disco songs and, and some other songs to, you know, elicit their own personal story. So the natural structure for it was a musical. So I watched a bunch of musicals, even a bunch of the MGM heyday musicals from the fifties, just to see, all right, what's the pacing? How do they intercut characters? And it turned out to be really helpful as, as a writer, just to see a different example and to make my, you know, open my brain to another way of telling a story. Is there going to be an actual musical space side your book? Because I would totally. God, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> I, I'm working on, I've, I've written act one and I know where it's going. So, you know. That's awesome. Do you mind just giving a brief synopsis of your oh, book? For- I didn't even tell anything about it. So Atlanta in the 1970s was changing in a bunch of different ways. Number one, it had this queer community that was kind of gathering there from all the smaller towns that surrounded it south. And Atlanta was always a progressive oasis to begin with. And in 1973, we elected our first black mayor, Maynard Jackson. So the entire city was struggling to figure out what its identity was, what it was going to be. So it was just a natural to put Jackson, Atlanta together with a drag performer who becomes Miss Gay America in 1978. And, um, leader of the Gay Liberation Front in Atlanta who wants to be elected to office, doesn't knows that he can't get there because it's still Atlanta. So he opens an escort agency to fund the gay newspaper that he's running. And uh, it's all true. And the more that I found, I was like, I don't need to write fiction. I can't write fiction. So it's a good thing that I found all this stuff, that it is nonfiction. Um, and Atlanta's been a popping place for a few decades now. Let me tell you, there's, you know, nightclub owners who are torching each other's bars, putting out hits on each other while the queer community was just trying to put itself together in these bars. I was going to say, um, it's sort of a transition that comes from your other question, Jamie, in my case, with writing about homosexuality and the works of William Faulkner, uh, a, a big emphasis of where that came from is that I sort of refused to believe that one couldn't fine narrative and fine queer representation in older text. I was, I mean, I was an undergraduate the first time I read Faulkner for a professor and I, I asked the professor when, well, I've made a statement in class one day. Well, well, because Faulkner was obviously gay. And then I just started talking about it. And I, the, the professor let me finish before saying, but he wasn't. I was quite confused. I was like, hey, did you read the same book I read? Because this was definitely written by someone who was definitely part of the family. Uh, and was, he was like, that's not true. And then like kind of went on. And I was sort of convinced that there was those sort of more to uncover. Um, and with Faulkner, it arose for Emily, which is still honestly well taught around. Uh, and, and any number of kids will, will raise a hand in class and say, isn't there something a bit gay going on in this story? And get shot down by by. By, by teachers or, or forced to prove it in some way from the innuendos of the story. And I wanted to kind of give a roadmap for how to think through innuendo and make it more explicit. And uh, I'll plug my press, which is also John's press on this. I chose the University Press of Mississippi because I did not want to write uh, a traditional queer theory academic book, really heavy hitting theoretical intro three to four chapters of readings conclusion. I wanted some biographical material. I wanted to have a bi- just talk through biography. I wanted to be able to read text as a literary uh, scholar. And I wanted to write in the first person to add in places where having being part of the queer community is uh, everywhere where this is coming from. That I see this because these are experiences that I can bring to bear in my reading methodology and the press 
I, I knew not just because it was Faulkner, but because of books I'd read by UPM that they would allow something to be expansive in that regard. So. I think for me, it, it, it was a similar story and I'm writing historical fiction, but um, really being invested in and heavily influenced by um, the African-American literary canon. So, you know, Ellison and Morrison and Walker and wondering, you know, where would I have fit in, in these worlds that they were writing about? Because I saw myself there. I saw my family in those worlds. And I'm like, surely I would have been there and people like me. And so really kind of directly engaging in writing back to that canon and putting Black queer characters um, in those worlds and in those historical time periods and living through and experiencing those um, events as well. And so since my book uh, parallels the Great Migration of African-Americans moving and quite literally fleeing the South in droves uh, between 1915 and about 1972, moving to Midwestern cities and, and Western cities and even changing the uh, racial demographics from cities like that, um, like Chicago and, and, and Detroit. And so, um, yeah, I wanted to see what are the queer Black characters doing as, you know, part of this migration. Um, and so the narrative starts with a character, Eve Mann, in 1972 Chicago, who's been raised by her aunt, doesn't know anything about her family um, or parents, and it's her journey to discover those stories. So the narrative starts in 1972, Chicago, and then it moves backward um, in, a ver in a reverse migration um, to 1920s Georgia. I, I don't want to cut off John or, or Elizabeth from answering that, but Shelley, your book's title is It's Everyman, correct? Yeah, so actually the character's name is Everyman, but man yeah. two ends. And so um, she's called Eve Man. Okay. I, I was I was wondering if, because uh, I know the, the name Everyman is an old play from the Renaissance or, or pre-Renaissance, but obviously like it, the idea of it could be anybody. But in this case, it also feels like you're, you're I don't want to say playing with, but really kind of exploring gender with the character too. I just wanted to sort of see if you wanted to comment more on. Yeah, thank you. Actually, yeah, it, it quite um, intentionally engages with the, um, the 15th century morality play, Everyman, where we get that title from, and the concept of the everyman, right? In, in literature and just about any other industry, that everyman is usually a cisgender, cisgender heterosexual white male, right? And so I think that you absolutely can have a Black woman to be the universal avatar for these universal themes that we all experience and go to. So I quite literally wanted my everyman and the everyman um, to be a Black woman. Thank you. Great. Well, everybody's book is great. I have them all. The only one that I have finished is John's because I was just curious to know what those lesbian and gay couples, how they're doing in Mississippi. And wow, I, I read it in an afternoon and a night and I'm, I'm, a third of the way through the other. So everybody's is great. Um, I chose a memoir because I already had the script of my one woman show. So my memoir book of stories, a lesbian bell tells 
outrageous Southern stories of family loss and love. And I had, had been performing my one woman show, you know, on the side here and there for fun and fringe festivals for, I don't know, five or six years, I guess, I guess. And people would come up to me afterwards and say, have you read a book? Have you written a book yet? You should make this into a book. Um, and, you know, I'm not an academic. I'm not a professor. I don't, I don't think I'll ever write. I don't think I'll ever write another book again because I prefer talking and performing and counseling and ministry. And yet I knew that I wanted my stories to reach more people. And since I already had a script from my show, I didn't think it'd be that. I went back and forth. Do I write a self-help book, you know, for my clients on like coming out or forgiveness or because those are themes that I help my clients with and that I've wrestled with. And then I just thought, okay, I, I did a journaling thing. What would be the most fun to write, right? Where is my passion? And I love stories. I like telling stories. I love hearing stories. I love seeing people in community come alive, sharing their stories together. So I just thought, you know, I think that that might be fun. And, you know, it took a little longer than I thought. But anyway, it's about my true stories of my Mississippi roots, I grew up in Northeast Mississippi in a tiny town called Okalona, Chickasaw County near Tupelo. Um, coming out in the 90s, in my early 30s as bisexual and then lesbian and here in Washington and uh, wrestling with a lot of family rejection. It was very difficult. And then my healing process and finding love and belonging. And I, I think I have humor in it, uh, as well as the hard, tough stories that also need to be told. You know, it's, I think it's got heart and humor. Um, I used to do community theater many years ago and just fell in love with the stage again, a little later in life and in my fifties. And I was like, wow, this is fabulous, you know, to, I'm an extrovert and I like to do different things. So that's why I chose memoir in terms of stories. Um, each stand, story sort of stands alone. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful that I have writ, lived such, a, such an eccentric, rich life so far. And I just look forward to the more stories come. There have been so many stories during this pandemic too. And I thought, oh, does that mean I'm going to write another book? Oh, I don't think, well, but you know what? I'm going to update my one woman show because I've already booked, I've rescheduled. Again, I had some things canceled, of course, in Mississippi, sadly, but I've already rescheduled and got things booked at Mississippi State in March and Delta State in March and hopefully Oxford and Jackson um, and other, other places. So that's a little bit about mine. Well, um, I love all the different genres here, too. It's just fascinating to me. Um, my, like a lot of research, I guess, mine was really based on my own experiences. That's how it all got started. I was teaching at Xavier University in Louisiana, and I loved my job. just one of the best jobs I've ever had. I was actually doing research and writing a little bit on dream interpretation and counseling because I loved using dreams with my clients. And Hurricane Katrina hit and kind of... Um, blew me to Mississippi to evacuate. Um, and to make a long story short, I met my husband and ended up staying. And it was, you know, meeting my husband was wonderful. It was the best relationship I'd ever experienced in my life. But I just kept questioning, what in the hell am I doing back in Mississippi? And how do people do it here? They're just so conservative. I don't know if I can do this. And I guess like 
we're kind of trained to do when we get our PhD. I thought, I'll just turn this into a research project. And so I literally just wrote an IRB application and started driving around trying to find anyone I could to interview, any um, lesbian gay couples to interview. And that's what led to my book. I'd done quantitative and qualitative research before. um, And my dissertation was on gay identity. So I knew how to do research, but I can't say I'd ever done an oral history. Um, It was something that I know usually comes, obviously comes more out of the history field. And so I started reading books on oral history. I read some books on um, writing um, nonfiction and it just kind of took off from there. And I first thought that it would be some kind of research paper, some kind of research book. And the stories were just so rich that I heard from these couples around the state on questions about religion, um, their experiences with their families, their communities, um, whether their experiences with um, legalized marriage, um, intersection of race um, and sexual orientation. And the stories were just so rich. They moved me so much. I, um, I just I do more than a research paper or a research book. And so it really led into this kind of a mix of um, telling my own story, telling the stories of these couples and then bringing some, um, you know, bringing some of the literature in also that's out there on couples and um, queer theory. John, one of the things I love most about your book, which is just a fantastic book, though, is that you also, and I I guess you probably added this later or maybe alongside, you also have these little, usually in italics, snippets about Starkville specifically and pride in Starkville. And I was just wondering in the writing process, where was that sort of in your mind as you put the book together and how you decided to sort of put that as a sort of sort of a little, I don't know, connector is what it felt like when I was reading your book uh, to the other, the other interviews that you, you include. I don't know. I just wanted, if you would comment on, on that. You know, I just, I felt like when I was interviewing the couples that it, the story was not just about them, it was about me because I was living there. And I really felt like as a researcher, I need to be honest and say that I'm a participant too. And I need to share my story, not only because I really wanted to, but also because I felt like the reader needed to see how my own experiences here may have impacted the way I interviewed um, the couples and just my whole perception of what I was what I was seeing in Mississippi. So I appreciate that question. Thank you, everyone. Uh, that was delightful. And I'm, I'm enjoying very much hearing you talk about your books. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about this question of the South. This came up in yours, John, more generally. Um, All of your work engages with the South or particular places that are designated as Southern. And I'm interested in your relationship to that, um, to if it's Mississippi specifically or the South more generally. Do you identify as Southern? Are you more tied to a particular space or place? or do you think about the South more broadly? And I know some of you grew up in the South and no longer live here. Some of you have connections or you know, imaginative journeys in the South. So talk a little bit about the role of the South in your writing. Um, and and I guess in your, your identity as a writer, I'm really interested in, in how that evolves here. I'll take that one because I'm very uh, passionate about being a Southerner and being a lesbian Southerner and being... Um, uh, wanting to influence the South to change and wanting to influence more LGBTQ folks to come out and live out with pride. Um, I left Mississippi a long, long time ago for many reasons. Um, our parent, my parents actually, although they were much older and in some ways not progressive, 
in a way they kind of were, because I remember my dad telling me as a little girl, girl, not much here for you, Mississippi. You need to leave this state. <laughs> you can go anywhere you want to go to college, as long as you don't go north of Virginia. <laughs> so, Why do you do that well, Elizabeth? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, my siblings were much older and they had all left, although most of them went to Ole Miss. I was the only one who didn't go to college in Mississippi. And um, so I was gone for a long, long time. And, and I came out, it was very difficult. And I was very hurt, you know, by my family members and, and other Southerners and the attitudes down there and, and the racism and the homophobia. And, and so writing this memoir for me was very healing because I knew I had to go back and do some healing and do some writing down there in my homeland in Chickasaw County. I knew I had to do that. And I mean, I had gone back here and there, for, but mainly, mainly just for funerals, you know, and to visit some friends, my parents, after my parents died, parents been gone a long, long time. And I mean, my parents were born in the twenties, y'all. So they were very conservative. They grew up <clears throat> Southern Baptist. And then mama joined the Episcopal church when uh, she got sick of the Baptist minister talking down to the ladies, talking down to the ladies of the church. But um, so I went back in 2019, I spent 10 or 11 days, I guess, in my hometown visiting a friend of mine at his cabin out in the country. And I kind of reconnected and kind of fell in love with it again and went over to Oxford. And actually I met Jamie, I booked my show in Oxford. I, I mean, I've always loved Oxford. Um, and reconnected with some people in my hometown, with some very progressive Catholic sisters in my hometown who knew my mother. I just felt like I had this major healing. And then I started finding out a few years before that, actually, because I would read things and my cousin would send me stuff about, you know, there are pride festivals happening in Mississippi. And I was like, what? In like 20, was it 2015, the first one, Oxford and then Starkville? Was that how it went? And I mean, that made the news and my cousin sent me these articles and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I teared up really. I saw pictures and I saw stuff on Facebook about that. And, and I found out about Sammy Moon starting the LGBT fund of Mississippi last summer. I found that out. My cousin, Joji Pritchard and Jackson sent me that article and I burst into tears and started running around the house. And my wife, Marie said, what is it? What's what happened? And I said, you'll not believe it. There's this thing down in Mississippi called the LGBT fund and they've raised over a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, it was like, wow, there are good things happening down there. I mean, there's a lot of awful stuff as well, but we, I believe we have to focus on the positive and, and expand that. Um, so I kind of have reclaimed my, my love. I mean, I do have a complicated relationship for the South, but I am definitely Southern. I'm definitely a Mississippian uh, and my grandparents were from Tennessee. So I claim Tennessee as my second home and, have connection with you know Virginia and North Carolina. Marie's from Raleigh. We used to live in Asheville. I mean, there are many, so many wonderful things about the South and our love for storytelling and so many great writers. My grandmother, my grandmother, even there's a story in our family that that my grandmother, my mother's mother, taught Eudora Welty in junior high school at Central High in Jackson. So I've always just been fascinated with southern writers and and how eccentric we are you know i mean whether we live down there or if we've left or or newcomers come to the south there's just something kind of magical about 
the people and the hospitality and the eccentricities and, you know, bless your heart and how's your mama and them and drinking tea on the porch. And I, I really miss all that. I love it because people don't do that up here in Washington, D.C., you know? So thinking about hyphenated identities, right? I consider myself a Southern Northerner or a Midwesterner because um, I'm a Chicago native, um, but we consider that the North, <laughs> particularly <laughs> on the South side of Chicago. But, you know, that's certainly where a lot of um, Black Southerners from um, the South landed as part of the Great Migration, including my parents. My mom is from Memphis and my dad was from Arkansas, Burdette, Arkansas. And so I... Um, I mean, I grew up referring to kind of Memphis as home, and I, I would ask my mom, like, are we going home for Christmas? So I've spent a lot of time in the South uh, with my grandmother fishing and stuff like that. And then um, I did my undergraduate at Tuskegee University in Alabama. And so I kind of always knew that I would, even phrasing it now, return to the South, <laughs> um, because I, I do consider it a, a return to a home. And so my wife and I moved from Chicago to Arkansas three years ago. And I mean, it's just where we want it to be for the life that we wanted to live. Um, we're into homesteading and raising our own food and stuff like that. So um, we recently purchased a 15 acre um, homestead property here uh, to really kind of put down, down roots. Um, and so, you know, my, my work, explores that as well, um, being a child of the migration is what I call it, and what it means to um, return to the South, even though this is kind of a um, next generational type of return. Um, and so, yeah, Southern identity has always blended very well, even growing up in Chicago, because my cousins were like me. Um, when we talk, where we live in Chicago or if we're in California or whatever, there's still a difference in, in our speech patterns. And so I would even get teased as a kid because I sounded too Southern for, you know, Chicago. Right. Um, and my mannerisms and speech patterns were a little more Southern than my, you know, Chicago contemporaries. And so it, it does feel like a return. Um, and it's, it is a strong part of my identity. So obviously that's in my work as well. And again, I'm learning things about myself as I listen to everyone speak and um, hearing um, the first women of the panel speak just really reminded me, like Elizabeth said, of a complicated relationship with the South. And then Shelly, what you said really struck me because I, from the time I was a kid, when we moved here when I was in second grade, so my dad, could take a job at Mississippi State University. I was told um, in the South that I sound like a Northerner, and I was told we went to visit family in the North, and I sound like a Southerner. And so for years, I always felt like I had one foot in and one foot out. In a strange way, this book kind of made me realize that I am a Southerner and that there are things I love about the South that I hadn't realized before. Because after um, college and beyond, I just I went away to the city. And I, I was in New Orleans, which it didn't feel like the South to me, like Mississippi South. And, um, and Fort Lauderdale is, is South Florida, but it certainly didn't feel like the South. Um, and, you know, as I 
met my husband and went through the process of writing this book and becoming a part of this community, a college town, I realized and I remembered the things that I did love about the South. These close-knit um, friendship groups and these people that um, are like family to me. And they're the parts of the South that a lot of times people don't recognize in all the conservatism and the, all the isms, the racism and the um, heterosexism and so on. And it, it just reminded me that um, the South is more than, um, you know, what you see in terms of um, the terrible Dixie flags and some of the crazy stuff that's happened out here. Uh, you know, all the, all the terrible um, racism that there are really good people here, especially the college town. And um, I realized I was a part of that. And so that was a big identity shift for me, I think. I was going to say, um, as the Faulknerian on the panel, when you ask about my relationship to the South, of course, I have to say, I don't hate the South. I don't hate it. I don't. I don't. Uh, from Absalom, Absalom. And I don't, actually. I, as the person who's broadcasting from Wisconsin right now, I, I'm st- I wake up some days and I'm like, am I really in Wisconsin? Uh, I, Is it I'm, South I'm, Wisconsin, Pitt? Yeah, I mean, admittedly, I can see Illinois from my house, okay. like, you know, uh, or something like that. So, um, <laughs> um, and, and admittedly, Wisconsin is basically, it's it's the Mississippi of the North in many ways. It's just different accents. Um, but uh, but I, I do, I love being from the South. Growing up, it, I never really thought of, of, I never really spent a lot of time thinking I'm a Southerner. For me, it was just, I, this is, I'm from home. And to this day, when I when I get down south and I get into rural West Tennessee and North Madison County and cross over the line into Gibson County, where my family has lived since the 1830s, it just it just feels like home. Everything about it, just the way of life, the pace of life, uh, and I love that. Born in Memphis, which is of course the largest city in Mississippi, the second largest being New Orleans, you know. Uh, and then I hear Jackson number two, but uh, but like I remember one day in grad school early in grad school, sitting in a graduate level class, and one of the other people in class did have a much, much thicker, almost maybe put on Southern accent, and was from somewhere in like near Little Rock or something like that. And every time a question about Southern authenticity came up, the professor would always ask the student, is that right? Is that true? And I'd be like, why don't you ask me? I know. And I have an opinion. Oh, but you're not from the South. And I would just have these moments of like, what, what am I doing wrong? Like, do I need to, I don't know, pull out a tooth or, or, or what else, what stereotype of the South are you looking for that I'm not fitting? And I make jokes about it, but I mean, it is, it's home. I still, to this day, I drive home when I, when I'm going to visit family, even though this is where I own a a house and, and where I see myself for quite uh, for a long time into my future. And I, I, I think in many ways in writing Gay Faulkner, it was partially because I wanted to see queer identities in Faulkner, also because I just sort of wanted to declare that this is a place where people live, like me live, not just queer people, like not just LGBTQ plus people, not a gay person alone, but just folks who are, who are not like somebody off of Dukes of Hazard. Uh, who are not uh, like that? It's not not every day is an episode from Steel Magnolias. Just maybe, maybe <laughs> once or twice a week is that actually what Southern life is like? Uh, and I just felt like you know there was some reclamation going on there. Um, and I again now my my whole book, the profile of my book plays very well in the South, and I constantly find myself 
kind of invited back south and coming south to talk about it. And it, and it, and it feels like a homecoming every single time. I always have a difficult time knowing that I'm probably the most Southern person in any room and I'm probably the least Southern person because I was born in DC. I don't sound at all like I'm Southern, but I've gone to schools in the ACC and the SEC. My father's family were neighbors of President Lincoln's killers and my mother's family were conspirators and both sides of my family enslaved people. So my this question really forced me to look at some things and, and figure out why I feel like I do claim being Southern, because there's all the reason not to, given given where I come from and the conflicted and kind of liminal place D.C. is. It's not quite Southern, but I have all this history that's pulled me here and lived more than half of my life in Atlanta. So why do I choose to claim it? And I think it's all because of Atlanta, because it's this energizing place that is distinct in the South. And it's it is big city America, but ingested and, and digested and processed by all of those of us who have lived in the South and brought something to it. So, uh, you know, I, I wrote about Atlanta. It was partly a love letter because it spent more than two decades here. And I really just wanted to say something definitive about this place that I grew up in love. But also because I think people tend to dismiss any parts of the South even the big cities that, you know, we're not our harbingers of cultural change or anything. I'm here to tell you that it's, you know, Atlanta is this nexus of change and is where things happen. And it goes back to as far as the fifties and the sixties, I just found this rich vein of material from the seventies about queer life that, that had not been put together in one place. So uh, there's a lot to write about. And I'm surprised that within like a five mile radius of where I've lived, there's so many stories that I'll probably never even get to. But I'm going to get to the big ones. What's so interesting, I was thinking as you were talking, Marty, that it's like all of us have in some way talked about this theme of, um, I don't know, a complicated relationship with the South, like Elizabeth said, or this, you know, kind of feeling like a Southerner, but not being sure that we're viewed as a Southerner. Or, and I just, I guess it makes me wonder about like some of my couples said in my book, the whole queer experience and whether or not it takes time for us to feel like, okay, we're Southern too. Just because we're not straight, white, Baptist, church-going people doesn't mean we're not Southern too. Somebody, a couple of mentors have warned me specifically. It's like, if you want to write something called like sort of Southern and try and grapple with all these things, good luck. That's a book. That's a series mm-hmm. of books. You know, just trying to define what different people think makes them Southern is difficult enough. Sounds like a project for the six of us. That's a great idea. Oh. Yeah. Maybe next year's panel. We'll see. Y'all, I cannot believe how the time has flown. We're at five o'clock already. It has been a pleasure talking with all of you. Um, I can't agree more that, there, that we need to tell these queer Southern stories. Um, I moved to Mississippi in 2003, and I fell in love with queer Southern culture. Um, the people here are just so resourceful and hilarious and dynamic and they know how to take care of each other and they bring all this together and it's time it's beyond time that we tell these stories in all their diversity and all their richness i'm so pleased that the mississippi book festival has started to see what a rich vein this is tap into i look forward to your future projects and you have an open invitation to come see me uh, in water valley or oxford anytime to read or just to hang out and dish 
and bring the boa, Elizabeth, I insist. Absolutely. <laughs> and I'll bring Thank my show to Yes, I'm we're looking forward to it. Yes. So <laughs> please come visit. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank For those you. watching, please check out all these fabulous books um, and keep an eye because these are all writers to, to be watching for in the future. Thank you, everyone, for being with us today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party.